Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. you grab your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 35. Exodus 35, we'll do the offering at the end here today. And I know it feels slimy. I don't mean for it to feel slimy. I just want to give us a chance to worship uh, together. So Exodus 35, we're in a series through the book of Exodus. So we're making our way through it. We're in 35 today. We're going to do the end of chapter 35. So we'll start in verse 30. And then we'll go into verse, or chapter 36. I'm not, we're not gonna read all of it because you've actually read this word for word in chapter 31. It's a different perspective, so I'll summarize it. I'm gonna do a few verses in 36, though, just to get us to where we need to go here this morning. Uh, but looking forward here today. Uh, so last week we talked about money and you came back, which means you didn't hear it. Uh, so I'll do that one again. Uh, no, I'm glad you're here with us this morning. We're gonna talk this morning about generosity. We're gonna talk about though generosity, not with our money, but with our time and our talents here today. And so we'll talk about that this morning. I feel a bit like uh, Jesus in John chapter five, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And so the multitudes are coming because it's this guy that makes people, gives people free food. And so they draw to him. And in John chapter six, he gives this sermon. And at the end, he says, if you're gonna follow me, you gotta eat my flesh and drink my blood. And all the people leave. And so what was thousands of people is now down to him and his disciples. And then he asks them, do you guys want to go to? You, you, you can leave if you want to. And Peter's like, no, we're not going anywhere. You got the key to eternal life. And so I think sometimes these messages feel like a thinning of the crowd. And uh, so they're not always fun for me to prepare for, but I believe and trust that God is leading us in this direction this morning. And so we're going to do it together today. All right, on the screen are some passages we're going to study this morning. There's a lot of it because I want you to know I'm not making any of this up. Uh, this sermon can feel self-serving for me and our leadership. And I want you to know this is in the Bible. So I want you to know that. So here are some passages we'll study this morning and maybe even a few more that we'll touch on. But if you wanna take a picture of that or write it down just to double check me, uh, you are more than welcome to do that uh, this morning. All right, let's go to Exodus 35. We're gonna start in verse 30. We're gonna go all the way through chapter 36, verse two. I wanna recap a bit from last week and then put it all in a new kind of a context for us this morning. Exodus 35, verse 30. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. Israel had 12 tribes. Uh, Judah would have been the biggest of the 12. And Judah would have been first. When they would have marched through the wilderness, Judah would have been the first tribe, the largest of the tribes. They would have gone first. So Bezalel is from this prestigious tribe of Judah. And he, God, has filled Bezalel with the Spirit of God. The first time we read of a man in Scripture being filled with the Holy Spirit, it's a construction foreman named Bezalel. Not a pastor, not a worship leader. He probably can't even play the guitar. Uh, but he is really good in construction, and he's the first person we read of in Scripture filled with the Holy Spirit. So if that's you today, and you work with your hands, and you feel like, yeah, but I don't need the Spirit for this. Yes, you do. And God has proven it here to us. He has filled him with the Spirit of God with skill, intelligence, and knowledge, and with all craftsmanship. God gave him all of these gifts. For what purpose? To devise artistic designs. So just real quick, whole other sermon. I think God cares about good art. I think he wants art to be beautiful. And I think as Christians, we haven't done really well in that field. And so here, God gave this man the ability to make artistic things. They're not always useful, but they're beautiful. And God cares about that kind of thing to work in gold and silver and bronze, verse 33, and cutting stones, for setting and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft, and he has inspired him to teach, both him and Oholiab, so now the second of the two, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. If Judah was the largest tribe and the tribe that went first in their uh, movement, Dan is the smallest of the tribes and goes last. So if you're paying attention, God is telling us something. He chooses from the largest, the greatest, and the least to fulfill his purposes. Verse 35, he, God, has filled them with skill. God filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Oholiab, this is chapter 36, verse one. And every craftsman 
in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence. God gave them skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary. Sometimes we think God only fills people, gives people skills to do things that require them to be on a stage, playing music, preaching, that kind of thing. Here we're learning God gave them skill in construction. God gave them these gifts to build the sanctuary. Verse two, and Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. So last week, again, we talked about money. We talked about how it's God's and how what spurs us on towards generosity is the goodness of God. It's not greed or compulsion. It's none of that. It's just how good God has been to us. And so this morning, I wanna talk about this. So what's happened so far in context is uh, God has delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. On their way there, Moses went up on top of Mount Sinai, was there for 40 days and 40 nights. The people of Israel got nervous and bored because their leader had gone away. They were scared. And so they asked Aaron, Moses' brother, to build them an idol. They wanted somebody to worship, something to follow. And so they built an idol, a golden calf. God sees it, sends Moses back down. Moses um, speaks to them in a harsh tone. He speaks the words of God. And then uh, they know their demise is near. And so Moses goes back up the mountain to intercede on their behalf, to tell God, give him grace, give him grace, give him grace. He's there another 40 days and 40 nights. He comes back down and he delivers the blueprints of the tabernacle, this uh, mobile tent that they would use in which to worship God in the wilderness. He gives them the blueprints and tells them, here's what we need. We need a bunch of stuff, a bunch of gold, silver, and bronze, a bunch of linen, a bunch of yarn. And the people leave and they come back overflowing in generosity to build this tabernacle. And so now if you picture it, you've got a pile of stuff everywhere and now you need people to build the tabernacle. And God had already told Moses, I've chosen these two men, Bezalel and Oholiab, and they're going to lead in the construction and this is the first time now that Bezalel and Aholiab hear that they will be in charge of this. Hey, all this stuff, I want you guys to do it. And so they come forward to build. But what we're learning here and what we're seeing is that these are men who are skilled and men who are willing to be used. So I wanna put this all in context. Let's talk about last week just a bit. We talked about not just biblical context, but our cultural context. We need to know our story in order to know the story we're living in to know how to handle what God has given us. So we talked about the Great Depression last week, which was, I'm sure it was riveting for high schoolers to listen to. And so we talked about that. And uh, in the Great Depression, um, the culture was to be conservative. It was conservative economically because you have to be, because you don't know. You don't know when your next meal is coming from. You don't know if you'll ever buy lima beans again. So get 45 cans of them and then pass them down in your will for generations. That's what you need to do in the Great Depression. And then World War II happened. And in World War II, America asserted herself and became who she is today. World War II, none of it was fought on our soil. It was all fought overseas, primarily in Europe. And so in, on the American soil, we had nothing to rebuild. But what we saw was a chance to overtake European countries to become the military and economic leader of the world. And so we did. Uh, the factories that were constructed to build weapons for warfare were left empty. And so now they became factories in which to buy or to create consumer goods. We had more money than we had ever had. We had more product than we had ever had. And so America became a superpower. And with that became a vision, an American heart towards consumerism towards promoting an American ideal. And, but they had to, marketers, consumer, uh, consumers had to figure out how do we move people from a Great Depression mindset of conservatism into being consumers? How do we make people who are stingy, how do we make them spend more? And if you're like my kids, you just pester them to death and then they spend more. That's how it works in my family. Uh, but how do they do it? And so then came the rise of marketing. But there's an economist named Victor Lebo who was a World War II economist and he made this statement. He said, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, worn out, replaced and discarded at an ever increasing rate. 
What he saw was if we're going to be an economic superpower, we're gonna have to buy a lot of stuff. We have to have money in people's hands. And so we gotta make stuff consumable so they keep buying more and more and more. Then came the rise of marketing and public relations and in what was called the inadequacy approach. This approach in marketing was to tell you, you are inadequate unless you spend $90,000 on a Chevy Tahoe and then you're adequate. Before that, you're the scum of the earth. But if you have this, now you're finally adequate, but only for five years because then the engine goes bad and you need a new transmission, right? That's, that's what we're told. You're told you're not good enough unless you have this many rooms in your house or unless you have this kind of furniture or unless everything in your house is white and then you're good enough. That's how you know that you're good enough. That's an inadequacy approach. And they divide it into two separate wings. One was called planned obsolescence. This is where you plan things to go obsolete over time. It's why light bulbs only lasted a few months at a time. It's why things wore out. It's called planned obsolescence. The second uh, wing is called perceived obsolescence. Things may not actually become obsolete, but they're gonna make you feel like they're obsolete, kind of like bell bottoms, kind of like tweed jackets. Like that, that's what happened. It's perceived obsolescence. You, it's trends, it's things that make you feel like it's going out of style. And I said last week, Apple has cornered the market on perceived obsolescence. They've figured out how to make you feel like you need the iPhone 35. You need it because it's drastically different than the other one. They figured it all out. And not just that, but now you need a watch and you need some glasses to go with. That's what you need and a computer and an iPad, right? They figured out perceived obsolescence. So this all rose um, at that time, post-World War II. And then marketers created a cycle that they called work, watch, spend, repeat. The idea was that you'd go to work at your nine to five Monday through Friday, you'd come home exhausted with the rise of mass communication. Now you've got, I don't know, four channels on your TV. And so you can watch a television program after or during dinner, because now there's TV dinners and you can just watch TV and veg out. And the whole time there's, there's a product placement, there's advertising, all of that is happening. And you're being told you are inadequate unless you have this. And then came Saturday morning and you went to mystical, magical place called a shopping mall. And then while you were there, you were met with people in the hallways handing you samples and telling you things. There were smells filling the hallways and you were told you were inadequate unless you buy. And that just reinforced what you heard on your TV programming Monday through Friday. And so you bought, you spent. But then you overspent, which means you had to work even harder the next week, which meant even, you were even more tired and you vegged out even more. And that cycle repeated over and over and over again. And even today in 2022, we are living in this same routine because now we have social media and you thought, mass, you thought TV was bad. Now they can target you based on your age and gender and where you live and the things that you've liked on your Instagram feed already. They're making us more and more consumers. And so the, the idea is that you gotta keep up, you gotta stay on trend. And we said last week, this is the story that we as the church have been born into. We've been born into this ideal to buy, 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 spend, spend, spend. And so when, when the Bible comes along and you read scripture, it says, no, 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 don't spend, 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 give, give, give. It causes tension within us. This is the story we've been born into, the story of consumerism. And the sad truth is that it seeped its way into the church. But we can trace this um, American church movement all the way back to around the same time period, which is fascinating to me. So around this same time, post-World War II, we had the rise of the baby boomers, affectionately called the me generation. Anyone born from 1946 to 1964? How many baby boomers do we have? Born from 46 to 64? Raise your hand high, be proud of it. 46 to 64, all right. So around that time, the me generation rise, arose to prominence and they saw a lot of things happen in their lifetime. I mean, a lot of great things. They stopped wars from happening. Uh, Woodstock happened. And maybe that was great for you if you remember it. I don't know. I don't know where you were at that time and what you remember, uh, but that happened. Uh, music was on the rise. All of that was happening there, but freedom was the goal, right? Freedom, um, no more oppression, freedom, freedom, freedom. But here's the sad truth about the baby boomer generation. That freedom made its way into our families. And to this day, the baby boomer generation is the, has divorced at, the, at higher rates than any generation before or since. So the idea of freedom made its way into marriage. I will not be oppressed. In fact, I will divorce. But then what happens is from there, 
the church starts to take notice. And we meet a guy by the name of Robert Schuler. I don't know if you know Robert Schuler. This is Robert Schuler. Robert Schuler was, I think you can call him a pastor um, of a church in California, the Crystal Cathedral. He had a TV program called The Hour of Power. Robert Schuler saw that these people were so consumeristic, he thought he could build his own church brand around this, and he called it Positive Christianity. There's no mention of sin, no mention of hell, no mention of conviction, only mention of how good God would be to you if you did these things. So this positive Christianity in his church grew. He would have pastors from around the country come to speak at the Glass Church or the Crystal Cathedral, and they would uh, proclaim this same message of positive Christianity, appealing to a generation in need of positivity. Around the same time, there was a man by the name of Chuck Smith who was a pastor of Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California. Chuck Smith, as the next picture I think is Chuck Smith, and Chuck Smith uh, was a pastor there. Chuck Smith um, was not like Robert Schuler. Chuck Smith was highly conservative, suits and ties, sometimes even turtlenecks, if you were into that. Uh, and his message was a bit different from Schuler, but still highly conservative and traditional until he met a man by the name of Lonnie Frisbee. And this is Lonnie Frisbee. Lonnie Frisbee was a hippie. I know you can't tell by the picture, um, but he was a hippie. And Lonnie Frisbee in California came in contact with Chuck Smith because Lonnie Frisbee was dating, was a friend of the guy who was dating Chuck Smith's daughter. Lonnie Frisbee didn't wear shoes and very rarely showered. Um, Lonnie Frisbee was a, a drug addict who came to know Jesus and wanted every other drug addict to know about Jesus. And so at the rise of Woodstock and the hippie movement, he created what we now affectionately call the Jesus Revolution or Jesus People. And Lonnie Frisbee in California partnered with Chuck Smith and they began figuring out how to reach this young demographic. But what happened was in reaching the young demographic, they lost the old demographic. And in sad news, Lonnie Frisbee gave his life back over to drugs and alcohol and found himself in a very terrible position. But this was the rise of consumeristic Christianity starting from the hub here in California. In 1965, even worldwide, everything communal, everything that required community began to decline. This is a fact for you. 1965 was the peak of the bowling league movement. Uh, bowling leagues have never seen the same numbers since 1965. Um, and they attribute it to a number of factors. They attribute to the decline of worldwide wealth and, and education and the economy, but they also saw a complete distrust in leadership and government beginning in 1965, and it's never recovered since then. Now, from this generation of baby boomers came what's called Generation X. Any Gen X people here? Gen X, I'm one of you. Uh, we're latchkey kids. And so we grew up as children of the baby boomers. Again, the rise of divorce rates, which means we were raised in families with shifting loyalties. We didn't know who we belonged to. We had busy parents who were focused on their careers. One phrase, uh, one article I read said that we were born to hippies and raised by yuppies, which I think is very good. I think that's a pretty good accurate assessment of, of how it was. <laughs> but the values and culture of the baby boomer churches were not connecting to Gen Generation X. And so we saw the decline of church attendance with Gen X. Insert Bill Hybels in Willow Creek. Not here to pronounce anything other than this is just history. I wanna walk us through it so we understand where we are. Don't go tell anybody things that I said because you don't like what I said. Bill Hybels was a businessman. He was an economist, a finance expert, and a business expert who felt the call to ministry while in business school and became a pastor. He had a strong emphasis on business and vision. He was a vision caster, and his church was built primarily on Bill Hybels' vision. So he raised money for his vision. He raised people for his vision. In 1975, he planted Willow Creek Church, and it was a church based on innovation to reach Gen X, who were not happy with the churches of the boomer generation. They quickly rose to over 15,000 in Sunday attendance at Willow Creek. Another man uh, studied Bill Hybels, and this man was named, is named Rick Warren. Rick Warren founded what's called Saddleback Church in Orange County, California. But interestingly enough, Rick Warren is not from Orange County, California. 
Rick Warren is from Fort Worth, Texas, the complete opposite of Orange County, California. But in school, Rick Warren got the call and the heart to plant a church. And in this culture of marketing and consumerism, Rick Warren did what any good marketer would do. He did a market survey. And he found there were five hotspots in America where you could plant a thriving business, corporation, or church, and the top of which was Orange County, California. So Rick Warren set out to plant a church for the unchurched. And he did it, like any good businessman would do, by identifying his target audience. And he identified his target audience, and he and the leaders of this early Saddleback Church called this man Saddleback Sam. They narrowed their audience down to one type of person that they called Saddleback Sam. Because around this time, the journalist named Bill Bishop wrote an article and then a book about the big sort. How at this point in America, people were moving out of the cities and into suburbs. And into the suburbs, what was happening is now you're moving away from any sort of economic, social, or racial diversity. And in the suburbs, in pockets of the suburbs, and then in the inner city now, it's homogenous, meaning everybody looks the same, talks the same, thinks the same, shops the same. And at this point in church history now, Rick Warren has figured out, I can plant a church for one kind of people. Because in the suburbs, they're all that kind of people. And they're all driving Volvos and have two and a half kids and a white picket fence. And that's where I'm planting my church, in Orange County, California. So he creates this idea of Saddleback Sam. They called him Mr. Orange County. Let me just share you some, with you some things that they believed about their target audience of their church in marketing. They thought Saddleback Sam would be well-educated. He likes his job and likes where he lives. He thinks he's enjoying life more now than he did five years ago. He's self-satisfied, even smug about his station in life. Health and fitness are his priorities for himself and his family. He'd rather be in a large group environment than a small group environment. He's skeptical of quote-unquote organized religion, prefers the casual and informal over the formal. He's overextended in both time and money, and he has a pager. This is Saddleback Sam. This is how uh, not just Rick Warren, but a number of mega church pastors at this time decided how they were going to reach a community because it becomes so homogenous. They knew exactly who they were going after. So if you did not fit this model, if you were not Saddleback Sam, you were not a Saddleback member. You probably found another church. But what happened was Rick Warren began to uh, find these types of things and ways to grow this ministry of Saddleback Church. While Lonnie Frisbee was baptizing people in the Pacific Ocean, Rick Warren was baptizing people in what he called jacuzzis for Jesus. So at this time, the suburbs are growing. Everything is growing. There's the post-economic boom of the 50s and churches now become one-stop shops for families. How do I find my kids' friends? Well, I go to church. How do I network my business? Well, I find the trendy, the new church, the church that has the great affiliation. How do I figure out business policies? How do I figure out how to be a good businessman? Well, I go to church. Around this time, because of the suburbs, people got used to time in the car. They would drive 20 to 30, 40 minutes to go to work so it was not a stretch for them to drive 30 to 40 minutes to get to church. Everything was bigger. Technology, infrastructure, technological advancements were happening. We had the rise of quality cars. We had the rise of highways and interstates. And because you could drive 40 minutes meant you could pass the churches you didn't like to find the one that you thought you would like because you wanna be affiliated with that name or that pastor or those people or those programs. Saw the rise of audio amplifiers and sound systems, but the biggest change in culture at this time in the mid-70s to early 80s was air conditioning, amen? Air conditioning meant that people didn't have to live in the north anymore. They could live in the south and like it. And so they would move, but air conditioning became a staple of new homes and shopping centers and malls and churches who were anything had air conditioning. Now, none of these things, none of the technological advances, not cars and highways and interstates or audio amplifiers or sound systems or AC, none of that was created for churches, but it's hard to imagine our church culture nowadays without any of it, isn't it? It's hard to think about a local group of people. 
And again, because you would drive to church, you found a church based on the affiliation with the pastor or the programs or your preferences. And it's not gotten any better because now we have the rise of social media and celebrity pastors. You think you're cool? Well, you're not cool until you go to so-and-so's church. You know what cool Christianity looks like? It looks like this. We shop churches now instead of being part of them. And then 2020, the world changed through COVID. And with American consumerism at its peak, the church found its niche with streaming services. Now you didn't even have to drive anywhere to go to church. You just had to turn on your TV or your computer or your phone. You don't have to shower to go to church, which I would recommend you shower before you come to church, but you didn't have to. You don't have to get dressed to go to church. You can go to church in your pajamas. And the rise of, or at the peak of COVID, consumerism in the church had risen. We have a friend who said for the first time in her life, she could attend the Baptist church and the Methodist church all in one Sunday. The consumerism of our world has infected the church in such a way that church has become an event and no longer a people. Eugene Peterson says that American culture is probably the least Christian culture we've ever had because it is so materialistic and so full of lies. The problem is people have been treated as consumers for so long, they don't know any other way to live. We don't even know we're being consumers when we're being consumers. Kevin G. Ford in his book called Transforming Church says the consumer is never satisfied. Rather than being transformed into a life of sacrifice and service, the consumer will demand more and more of others. The Bible speaks nothing of Christians who consume. The Bible speaks of Christians who serve and sacrifice, who love one another when it costs them something. So I believe this passage in Exodus is about this. I believe it's about the church. I believe it's about using our God-given gifts for his glory in the church, among the people of God, to lead other people to worship him. For the first time in history, followers of God are about to have a place to worship in Exodus 36. They haven't had this before. They've been a people, they've been a wandering people, but now they're going to have a place of worship, a place in which the presence of God is felt and is manifest. And for the first time in the culture, in the history of this culture, they're gonna have a place for God to worship. We'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. But in this place now, God is going to tell them how we are to worship, what you are to do, what kind of people we are to be. There was a phrase that floated around churches from a couple of books, a number, probably 10 or 15 years ago, and this was the phrase. The church is the only organization that exists for the good of its non-members. And to a point, I agree with it. But biblically, I cannot fully agree with it because I believe the church exists primarily for the glory of God and for the good of the saints. That's why the church exists. Then from there, we share the gospel with the world. But what's happened in church culture is that we've become so programmed to sit at surface level and surface level in our giving, surface level in our talent and in our time that we're no longer a force to be reckoned with in the world. And this is not just my opinion. I believe this is true in scripture. I'm gonna show it to you through the New Testament. Galatians chapter six, verse nine. Paul says to the church at Galatia, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. Primarily, we are to do good to everyone, but especially those in the household of faith, because church is not an event, church is a family. And when church becomes an event, we no longer have to serve those in our midst. It's a means to an end, but when church is a family, it changes everything for us. When we forget that church is family and not an event, we kick in consumerism and we consume church. We consume people, we consume programs, but we are not the church. 
Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16 says that God gave the apostles and prophets, those of the Old and New Testament, the evangelists, shepherd and teachers, those that we have today, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the work of deaconing, for the work of being a deacon, of serving. The saints being the church. For what purpose? For the building up of the body of Christ, that is the church, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we, the church, may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. How are we doing so far, church? How are we doing in growing the body up so well that we're not tempted by the ways of the world? I would say we're struggling. Christian students are leaving the church. Christian students are making decisions about their sexuality, not based on the teachings of the Bible, but on the teachings of the world. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is, the, who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, the church, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. But wait, there's more. Romans chapter 12, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, the church, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, not to present your ideas, not to present your desires, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not become consumers, but rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, church, though many are one body in Christ and individually we belong to one another. That's family language. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Peter, in his letter to the church suffering under persecution, 1 Peter 4 says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show hospitality to those that are younger than you without grumbling. Show hospitality to those that are older than you without grumbling. Show hospitality to those who are different skin color than you without grumbling. Show hospitality to those who vote differently than you without grumbling. As each has received a gift, as each member has received the gift, use it to serve one another. Church, as good stewards of God's very grace, whoever speaks as the one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as the one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. But because we have become consumers without realizing it, we have lost being the church. And so we consume. And when what we consume no longer satisfies, we look for a new thing to consume at a new place from a new person. You see, we have all been given a gift to use for the good of the body, for the good of the church, to the glory of God. And sure, you can say, well, yeah, I use my, I use my gift for God in the workplace. Good for you. I'm just saying, scripturally, you should also be using it here. And you'll notice there's no age limit. There's no over 18, you have to. Over 18, under 60, you're allowed to do it. It's everyone. We all have a gift to be used. But we are not to use it. I have in my notes, we are not to use that gift willy-nilly. We're not to use this gift without any guardrails on it. So Exodus 36, verse one, God gives them the gift of building this tabernacle and how to do it, but it finishes with, in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. It's incredible that these men and women who construct the tabernacle 
follow God's instructions to Moses in Exodus 31. Remember the blueprint they saw and the overwhelming detail. And they do it. Like to a T, they do it. Every detail is covered. Everything is covered. Because they were obedient to the smallest detail, which tells us this. Yes, we all have a gift and there is a right way to use that gift in the church. So I don't have time to speak to every gift, but I wanna speak to one in particular this morning. If you are a teacher or a small group leader, whether that be for preschool on up to adults, there is a way in which you have been commanded to use your gift. And it's not to puff you up. James chapter three, James says that not many should desire to have the gift of teaching. You don't want this gift. Because when you have this gift, the stakes are raised and there's more accountability to you. There is a way in which we are to leverage the gifts God's given us. So let me say this, small group leaders of all ages, are you using the gift God's given you in accordance to his commands? Have you understood the weight that you carry in communicating God's word to people? I'm 42 years old, I've been in ministry for close to 20 years now, and I still get nervous every time I get up here. Secondly, Exodus 36, verse eight. All the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with 10 curtains. They were made of fine twine linen and purple, blue and purple and scarlet yarns with cherubim skillfully worked. It's not enough to have a gift. I think we have to work to become skillful at it. We work at the gift God's given us. It's interesting to think about these craftsmen, about where they honed their skills. Where did they use these skills and their crafts? They did it in slavery, as a hobby. There were women embroidering as a hobby. There were men doing metalwork and masonry. They were doing this as a hobby, not knowing that one day God would call upon them to build the tabernacle but they worked at it. They were skillful in it. They worked hard at their gifts. So whatever gift God's given you, it's not enough to say, I have the gift. We have to become skillful at the gift. Why? Because it matters to the body. We're building each other up. Well, then the argument is, man, I would love to. I'm just so busy. I've already stepped in it, so let's just keep going. It's interesting that when we speak in the church of first fruits, we talk about it in regards to money. And we'll say, no, 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 God, God wants your first 10%. We get arguments about gross income versus net income. We do all that. But we never talk about this when it comes to time and talent. Did student ministry for about a decade or so. And you wouldn't believe the number of times somebody called me up and said, hey, is there any way you could use a couch for your youth room? What kind of couch? Oh, I don't know. We've had about 35 years. We're getting rid of it. Do you want it? Why would I want your old couch? You don't want your old couch. Why do I want your old couch? But I'm too nice and I would say yes. And so we'd go get it and we'd bring it to the church and we'd carry up two flights of stairs to get to the youth room and we'd set it up and we'd dump all kinds of stuff out of the cushions of that couch. Like not even prepared to be given to the church. But it's interesting that when we speak of the talents God's given us and the time, time that God has given us, we are just like that old couch. Sure, church, you can have what's left over. I've given my best to my corporation and I'll give the church what's left over on Sunday or Wednesday night. I've given my best to the world. I've given my best to wherever I'm traveling to. I've given my best to, um, to that travel ball team. I've given, given my best there. And if I have time, and sure, I'd love to serve in the kids' ministry. And yet when we talk about money, it's no, 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 give off the top, give the first fruits. I would say that, that's gonna have to make its way throughout all of our teaching. If you're gonna give of your time and your talent, you better give the best you've got because it's for the glory of God. And I know it sounds self-serving, I get that, but I'm trying to help us engage here a bit more. This is our time and our talents, so... Let's talk again, small group leaders. How's that going for you? It's not honorably using your gift to cram the curriculum early Sunday morning or Saturday night. It's just not. I love you. It's not. 
It's not. You are to give your first fruits the best of who you are. You've been given a gift. When you sign up to serve in our kids' ministry and preschool ministry, it's not giving your best to get here 10 minutes late. Gosh, I'm gonna get in trouble. It's not giving your best. You don't show up late to work. And there are families who are depending on that. It's not your best to just clock in at this time of, of service and then to clock back out. It's, it's not giving your best. That's not worship. That's not glorifying God. That's consumerism is what that is. And it's evil. Student ministry volunteers. It's not giving your best to flake out. There are kids who need consistency in their life and you might be it. You might be the only one. And you can't just not show up because I just volunteered. You didn't just volunteer. You've been given a calling by God. Hospitality, greeting people at the doors. If we're gonna give our best, we've gotta give our best. Sunday morning is a Saturday night decision sometimes. interesting that we'll orient our weeks around so many different things, except for this, when this is the one thing as followers of God, we've been commanded to organize our week around. Exodus 35, before God gets into any of these commands, he says this in verse two, six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day, you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. You know that God has given us a way to orient our weeks. He's given us a way to orient our years in such a way that God might get the first fruits, that he might get the best from us. Not what's left over, the best from us. It means he gets the best preparation. He gets the best from us. So yeah, I'm too busy. I've got all these things going on. I got school, I got work, I got travel ball. I get it. I'm just asking you, where are your priorities and who do you love? Because if church is a thing that you fit into your schedule, I would encourage you to find another one. So what happened for these Israelites? Because a couple chapters earlier, they were using their gifts and their time and their resources to build an idol. Like these same people who are working with gold were probably the same ones who were building an idol. What happened to them? How did they so quickly move from being so consumeristic into being such an expression of the church? What happened for them? I think first what happened was repentance based on the character of God. That's what happened. Exodus 33, verse four, Moses comes down and proclaims what God has said. And when they heard this disastrous word, they mourned. Are you mourning this morning or are you just mad? Are you cynical? Are you trying to figure out ways? Yeah, but... Or are we mourning? Are we grieving over the fact that we have not given God our best? We've given him the leftovers. And when that runs dry, we'll be cynical and move on to somewhere else. They mourned. They were grieved over their sin. They were grieved over it. Not guilted, they were grieved. And then, because of their grief, though, they saw the character of God in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. As consumers, we should be condemned. We should be condemned. And yet God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. What happened to them? How do they move from being consumers to actually living like the church? They were grieved by their sin of consumerism and idol worship and they were moved by the grace of God. And their response was, yeah, how could I not? How could I not do that? So Mallory comes up and I'm just gonna wrap up and then we'll do our offering, but... Sometimes we, we buy into the lie that I can serve God without serving his bride, who is the church. No, 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 I'm serving God. I, I just don't do it in the church. I've got a bride and I love her. Goodness, I love her. 
She's amazing. And if you're going to be my friend, you're gonna be close to me, I need you to serve and love my bride. And if I'm out of town and her car won't start, I need a friend who will go over there and jump the car for her. You can't tell me you love me, but you're not gonna serve my bride. And in the same way, we try to say, yeah, I love God, I love God, I'm just too busy for his bride. Then you don't love God. You love what God gives you. You love what you get from him. You love the pep talk you get on a Sunday morning. But I would just have to wonder if you actually love the husband, if you don't love and serve his bride. So I don't know where all this hits you this morning, but I'm gonna tell you his bride needs you because you're part of it. I'm not gonna blow smoke and tell you how great it is and how uplifted you will be once you see the smiles on those little kids' faces. It's gonna be hard and it requires sacrifice. It means saying no to Braves tickets because you're serving that Sunday morning at church. It's what it means to be part of a family. It means that if it's family time, it's family time. And I'm gonna serve the family. It means that if God's given you something that you are good at, and by the way, as Christians, you're allowed to say you're good at something. It's not bragging. You're allowed to be good at it. And you can believe that God gave that to you and you love to do it. Let's do it here. Like, are you good at decorating your home? Like, do you have an eye for that? Let's do it here. Do you love seeing little children? Do you love seeing the light bulb come on for them when they finally understand something? Let's do that here. Like, I know you like it when you're teaching from 7.30 to 2.30 Monday through Friday. I'm just asking, would you do that here? There are plenty of ways to be doing that here. Because we've been called to serve one another in love in a way that would root us and ground us so the world has no shot at the church. But if we're just going to consume, then we will find ourselves like every other corporation in the world. We will run dry because we can't out-entertain Disney and we can't out-sport ESPN. And we can't out-music Nashville. We can't do it. But we can love each other well and serve the church well. We love God by serving his bride. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? And just allow the word of God to make its way into your heart and your soul. And what's true is that there's some of us here who have started coming here out of consumerism. And I love that you're here and I hope you're being fed and being challenged. But I would ask you to just evaluate why. Because that church you left might need you. There's some here today and you've left a church because of theological issues and you should. You should. But at some point in your time here at this church, we too will let you down. We will disappoint you. We will frustrate you. But I want you to hear this. I believe we're family. And I'm in it as long as you're in it with me. Got brothers and sisters in this room. I don't, we don't have members and attenders. I've got brothers and sisters here. We all need each other. So maybe for you, what has to happen this morning is you're gonna have to grieve over sin of consumerism. And maybe it wasn't that way at first. Like maybe you were really active and you were serving and you were part of things that were going on, but over time you've gotten tired and weary. Well, don't grow weary in doing good. For in due season, you will reap a harvest. as much as you can, do good to the household of faith. Maybe you're new here and you don't know how to get plugged in. I would just encourage you after the service to stop by the gathering place, talk to Jeff, we'll get you plugged in. But maybe for some of you today, the confession you have to make is I have not served with my gifts in obedience to the Lord. I've been lazy, I've been self-serving.
maybe it's time to reevaluate. You might even be called a deacon, but you're not deaconing. You might be called an elder, but you're not eldering. Church needs you. Bride of Christ needs you. And God has determined the boundary places and the times in which you would live. And you didn't get here because your job transferred. You got here because God called you here. Let's do this together. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not part of a family. Maybe you aren't part of this family of God because you haven't given your life to Jesus. I wanna invite you into that today. There's a family here that wants to love you and walk with you, that you're not alone. A family that I could say would never leave you or forsake you as best as we can, we won't. So we'd love to have conversations with you about that. But what I wanna ask us to do is to stand and on the screen will be ways for us to give. So if you'll stand, there are ways on the screen for us to give today if you've come prepared to give. Financially, that you can give. And they're there. You can we'll collect the offering in the hallways as well if you've come prepared to give in that way. But also on the screen is a way for you to get ready to serve in our church. So if you want to text this word serve to 678 671 5440, you'll just get a question back that asks you, Where do you want to serve? And then you tell us. And then we figure it out. So you can literally get your phones right now and do it if you want to. You can talk with Jeff after the service today. But a way that we remind ourselves that our offering is not about us, but it's about God. And we pray not just for financial giving, but for the ways that we give our time and our talent as well, is that we pray over our offering together. So I wanna pray this prayer together with you. It'll be on the screen. We're gonna pray it out loud together. I'll give us a benediction and we'll be dismissed. Let's pray this prayer. Loving God, I come to you in thanksgiving, knowing that all I am and all I have is a gift from you. I offer my gifts of time, breath, ability, possessions, and mind to you as a true act of faith to reflect love for you and my neighbor. Help me to reach out to others as you, my God, have reached out to me. We ask this through your son, Jesus, who reigns forever and ever, amen. As you go, may you be a people aware of the gifts that God has given you and compelled with a willing heart to use those gifts for the good of the body and the glory of God. And may grace and peace be with you. You are dismissed. Have a great week.